Lord, we thank you again for your wondrous word that you've preserved for us down through the centuries. That we might have it as an encouragement, as a guide, as a way to show us how you would have us live. Now help us, Lord, to dive into this psalm, the words written by David, but guided by your spirit, so that we might just remember what a great deliverer and preserver that you are. And as you give us, Lord, the plan, the recipe, the way that you intend for us to face struggles in this life, help to burn it into our hearts so that we might remember it, so that we might look to your word, to your spirit, to the way you would have us to be, because we know, Lord, that right there in the center of that is where we'll find joy and where we'll find peace, happiness, but most of all, where we find you. Help us, Lord, to find that and stay there. In Christ's name we pray. Wow, you guys seem like a long way off from up here. Uh, happy Father's Day. I know it's been said already, uh, but uh, I had to say it because Father's Day actually determined how I dressed today. The weather started out to determine how I would dress. It's been so hot lately that for about one microsecond, I considered shorts. <laughs> I don't have the legs for it, so you're not going to have to worry about that. But then you think, okay, it's going to be hot. What, what little, what's the least I can get away with and not get kicked off the elder board? How do you do that? So I thought, okay, I'll find a very thin pair of slacks, so that'll be nice. I'll wear a short sleeve shirt, and I won't wear a tie. But then I thought, wait a minute. This is Father's Day. If you don't have any Father's Day ties in your closet, I'll lend you some. That's what this is. It doesn't look too bad, actually. My kids have some taste, I think. But you can tell my kids are sort of nerdy. Because if you look really close at this tie, by the way, they told me, Dad, we got you a power tie. You know, power tie is supposed to be red, right? So I thought, wait, wait, this is not a power tie. Until I looked at these little symbols all over my tie. It's that little circle with the dash in it. That's the power button on your computer. Yeah, that's my power tie. Okay. I'm going to guess that some of you remember random dot stereograms. Okay, you have to be a little older to remember this. And back in the 80s, they were all the rage. You probably bought a calendar of them, maybe a little desk calendar. When you first look at the image, it just looks like a bunch of dots. Sometimes they're black and white. Sometimes they're colored. Sometimes they're little squares instead of little dots. And when you first look at it, you think, why am I buying a picture of random dots? Ah, but see, the trick is you have to know how to look. Because hidden in there are really two images, slightly offset. But you can't look at it just casually and see it. You sort of have to cross your eyes. When you do that, of course, since the way your eyes determine depth is from the angle of your eyes, you can determine that, wait, there's another image in there, and suddenly a little three-dimensional picture of a unicorn or something jumps off the page at you. Okay, 
If you don't remember those, maybe go back a few more decades to the view graph, uh, the view master. Remember the view master? Ah, here we go. Two little images that when you look at them, you can see 3D, supposedly, out of a 2D thing. Okay, why is he telling me this? We have before us Psalm 40, which is one of those psalms that has sort of two natures to it. It's a psalm of David, so it has something to do with David's life. But it's also viewed as a messianic psalm, so it has something to do with Jesus as well. And they're both there, but you sort of have to look for them. When I spoke to you a month or so ago, I made a, a silly physics joke. Okay, no surprise there. Uh, I was trying to tell you about how patient you have to be to teach physics because physics has some wacky things in it. And I mentioned something about electrons, sometimes being like waves and sometimes being like particles. Uh, yeah, and you, you were all sort of glazed-eyed. That's okay. The trick is they're both. But if you want to see one particular feature or the other, you have to do it right. You have to look right. If you do the experiment one way, you see one nature. If you do the experiment another way, you see the other nature. We're going to attack this psalm the same way. If you go at this psalm looking for language that applies to Jesus and to Jesus only, you'll see the Messianic psalm. If you look at the psalm interpreting the words or looking for words that apply to David in David's life, you'll see David's psalm. So let's just for practice, let's take the first view. Let's take the Messianic view and very quickly, I'm not going to read the whole thing together. We're just going to go through it quickly. We should be able to find language that applies obviously to Jesus and not to David and see if we can find those verses. So verse 1 and 2, uh, matter of fact, verse 1, 2, and 3, okay, those sort of things, they might apply to both David and Jesus because, of course, they both saw tribulation, they saw God's deliverance, but the language sounds just more like David in those first three verses. Okay, how about 4 through 5? Well, that sounds like it's also more like David's life. When we get down to verse 6 through 8, ah, now suddenly we've hit pay dirt. When you get to 6 through 8, you find language that sounds more like it's applying to Jesus. You hear things like, uh, burnt offerings and sin offerings you have not required. Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O oh my God. Your law is within my heart. That sounds a little more like Jesus than David. Now, you could make an argument, right? Uh, maybe there's something in the scroll of the book written about David. You have to stretch a little bit to find it. There's some verses in Deuteronomy that talk about the coming king, the earthly king, not the Jesus king. So you might say that applies to David, but it's a little bit of a stretch. And since Saul was the first king, maybe it points to Saul and not David. So those verses sound more like they're talking about Jesus. And then, of course, that case is bolstered if you go over to Hebrews chapter 10. If you go to Hebrews chapter 10... The writer of Hebrews quotes this passage as a reference to the Messiah. That part of Hebrews is talking about how Jesus' sacrifice is better and has actually replaced the Old Testament sacrificial system. So that's obviously messianic stuff. It also tells you that 
God and the Holy Spirit are not bound by translations. They don't worry about our problems with translations. The Holy Spirit is happy to use several translations. Because if you read the psalm in Hebrews and you look at verse... Uh, I'll get to it in a minute. Verse 6, at the end of verse 6, but you have given me an open ear. The Hebrew version of the psalm says, literally, ears you have dug for me. Sounds like he cleaned out my ears for me so I could understand. But when that verse gets quoted by the writer of Hebrews, if you read it over in Hebrews chapter 10, you read a body you have prepared for me because that's the way it's translated in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, which is what the writer of Hebrews is quoting. So here's a case where God uses two different translations to make two different points, and he's perfectly happy with both. They both do the job necessary for what God wants the scripture to do in that situation. If you go on down through the psalm, verses 9 and 10 could apply to either one of them. Both David and Jesus uh, declared the message to the congregation. Verses 11 and 12 probably apply to both as well. Probably a little more like David, especially that part about my iniquities in verse 12. You kind of want that to point to David and not to Jesus. The only way you get around that one is to say, well, Jesus took on our iniquities as his own in some sense. So my iniquities would be my iniquities. Okay, let's go back and look at it now the other way. That's the sort of messianic view of the psalm, and that's not really the one I wanted to talk about this morning. Let's go back and view it again, this time through the lens of this is something in David's life. This is a situation in David's life that God wants us to learn something from. And what I think God wants us to learn is this. This is a recipe for how to deal with struggle in your life. And like any good recipe, it's got steps. Okay, step one. Look at verse two. In verse two, you see David mentioning the pit of destruction. I'm sorry, I'm going to a goofy movie about the pit of despair. But okay, here's the pit of destruction and the miry bog. Okay, it's obviously metaphorical language. David is not stuck in a miry bog. He's not down in a pit, but he knows what those things are like. So the language is supposed to tell us that David is in a set of circumstances that's hard to get out of. The, the Hebrew there translated uh, destruction is really more like uproar, tumult, noisy. So imagine a place where you get stuck and can't move where there's so much going on around you, it's so loud you can't even think, and you can't get out. If you stay there long, you will be destroyed. That's the situation that David is in. We don't know what it was, but we know it's bad. So step one in any recipe for how to deal with struggle is struggle. You gotta be in a struggle. There it is. Now, you don't need to go very far to find a contemporary example. Pick any 
crisis of the last few years. Pick one from your own life. A health crisis, a financial crisis, a relationship crisis. How about that sin that so easily besets us and won't let go? There's our struggle. Step one, struggle. Step two, cry out to the Lord. Look at verse 13. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. I can't think of a better day than Father's Day to tell you this. Your loving Heavenly Father wants to hear from you. Just like your dad wants to hear from you on Father's Day and any other day you want to call or text, your Heavenly Father wants to hear from you. He wants to hear your cry. He longs to come and rescue you. Wow. Back up a couple of Psalms and you get to Psalm 34. Verse 15 says this, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and get this, and his ears toward their cry. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Back in Second Chronicles, when uh, the writers are telling us the story of King Asa, Second Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9 says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth. To do what? To give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. How about a New Testament version? James chapter 1, verse 5 says this, If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. I like that without reproach language. Can you imagine coming to God and whatever the prayer line is, getting to the head of the prayer line and God say, wait, 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 weren't you just here yesterday? Go back to the back of the line. That would be a reproach. You're never going to get a reproach from your heavenly father. Come and ask. Come and beg. It also reminds me of what Jesus said about fathers in Matthew chapter 7. You probably know this one because it's part of the Sermon on the Mount. Which one of you, he says, if your son asked for a piece of bread, would give him a stone? Or if he asked for a fish, would give him a serpent? So now if you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more does your heavenly father, right? Now I've forgotten the rest of the verse. How much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask? So, cry out to the Lord. Okay, one last thing though. These Requests are always qualified in Scripture with words like in his name, right? In his will, by his power. There's always a qualification for these requests. Somehow God can tell the difference. Not hard for God. Not even hard for you if you have kids or grandkids, right? You can know from the very moment you hear your child 
you know exactly whether that child is mad or hurt just from the cry, right? You don't even have to get up out of the chair sometimes. You know, okay, he's not hurt. He's just mad and he'll get over it. Well, of course, God can tell the same thing when a request comes because I want something as opposed to a request because I want something in your name, in your will, by your power, by your authority. So be careful of the requests. Are we asking for something because we really want to just bask in God's favor? Are we wanting to bask in the generosity of a loving Heavenly Father? Or do we just want something? Or want out of something? God can tell the difference. And you should too. Remember John Piper's motto, right? God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. So think of this request answerer, this great heavenly father as that ever flowing spring rather than a trough. The trough has to be filled. The spring doesn't. The trough requires us to work to put water in the trough. The spring doesn't. The spring just wants us to come and ask for water and drink. Okay, step three. We got to get through this before the shade leaves us completely, right? Step three, wait on the Lord. Look at verse 1a. I waited patiently for the Lord. The Hebrew is literally in waiting, I waited. In English, we would say, I really, really waited. Not even Dr. Zeus likes this step. Nobody likes this step. Some of you may remember a book that he wrote probably 30 years ago now. Oh, the places you'll go. I see some nods. He calls it a most useless place, the waiting place for people just waiting, waiting for a train to go or a bus to come or a plane to go or the mail to come or the rain to go or the phone to ring or the snow to snow or waiting around for a yes or no or waiting for their hair to grow. Everyone is just waiting. It's a tough thing to do. But in God's way of doing things, waiting isn't useless. Waiting is a really good indication of my belief that I really do trust God to know what's right. That I really do trust God to do just the right thing in just the right way at just the right time. Hmm. When the time comes for me to play my part, if I have one, then the great conductor will let me know so that everything can be done in harmony just as he has orchestrated it to be. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You see, my timetable is not the correct one. God's timetable is, 
And here's the catch. Here's the key. Waiting is me saying God's timetable is the right one. There's also a warning in there about what not to do while you're waiting. Look at verse 4. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. Okay, we know that God intends us to do life together. That's the way it's intended to be. We're supposed to lean on each other. We're supposed to help one another through life. But be careful who you lean on and who you listen to. Obviously, the proud and those who go astray after a lie, (laughs) they're not the ones you're looking for. Find someone in whose life you can see God at work and wait with that person. Find someone who's not afraid of a little silence while you wait and who will gladly come back later and wait with you some more. And finally, again, don't think that waiting means sitting down doing nothing. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it, right? With all your might, do something. My mom was the best at this. Grew up on a farm, a sharecropper's farm, and was a farm lady all her life. This lady never sat down. It's almost like there was a spring in her chair. If she sat down, she was right back up because she thought of something else that needed to be done. And then she's off doing it. There's plenty of things to do while we wait. Step four. Step four is when the rescue comes. Look at verse two. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. Here's the part we've been waiting for. We just have to be a little bit careful Because sometimes our view of deliverance and God's view of deliverance might not quite be the same. It's it's sort of tough for us as humans not to anticipate what God is going to do. But it's sometimes dangerous to do that. Yes, God's deliverance, his ultimate deliverance for the believer is already set in stone. We know that will happen. But I don't have necessarily much of a promise about the deliverance that I want out of my particular circumstances right now on this earth. I don't have to look far to find examples of that. Uh, Most of you know that I sing with a few other folks here, the Walshes and Jim Cruiser. Uh, in a little singing group. We haven't sung much lately because of COVID and all that sort of stuff. We had a strong dislike for songs that only had two verses. I know it's a prejudice, but that's just the way it is. If, if we found a song that only had two verses, Jim and I would write another one because you, a song had to have three verses. We found one that we really liked, but it only had two verses. No problem. Jim and I sat down and wrote another one. It's a song you probably know if you listen to uh, Southern Gospel at all. The McCamey's sang it for a long time called uh, The Good News. 
the chorus says, the good news is that our hope's not in this life. There's a world that's far more real than what we know. And when it seems there's no miracle waiting to open wide, I know that God is in control. Well, uh, we had just been studying at that time in our Sunday school class uh, Hebrews, and we'd gotten to Hebrews chapter 11. And this is where you hear about all those heroes of the faith, but then you get to those in the list where the Bible says they were sawn in two and killed by the sword. That doesn't sound like a happy ending. That doesn't sound like God's deliverance to me. So we wrote a song that incorporated that view, which it went with the song. But this is what we wrote. The Bible tells of many saints who faced their darkest trials and the mighty hand of God was clear to see. But others saw no miracles and gave their very lives. Deliverance was just not meant to be. How could a God of mercy leave his children all alone? But souls within his loving hands are right where they belong. God's deliverance should be seen as his ultimate deliverance. Now, yes, he may very well deliver us from our circumstances of the trouble we're in right now. But what did Job say? Though he slay me, yet will I serve him. What did the three Hebrew children say? But if not. We always have to keep that in mind and realize that God's deliverance is the ultimate deliverance and that's the only one that counts. The problem is people don't like that particular way of looking at things. So you have to go back and think about what that reveals about what you believe about God. So if I'm looking at me not being delivered, maybe I'm in the miry bog and I never get out. Maybe I die in the miry bog. I don't know. What am I supposed to think about God? Well, well come on. There aren't that many choices, right? Either God is mean. He left me there because of some mean-spirited idea. Or God is arbitrary and powerless and it was just random chance anyway. Things happen by accident. But there's that third possibility, that God knows more than I do. And that what actually happens is really honestly for the best, for all concerned, for the glory of God and best for me too. If I take that view of God, I don't feel so nervous if the deliverance isn't exactly what I thought it should be. Sometimes songs help with this kind of thing. I like an old hymn called Day by Day. The last verse of which, if you'll forgive the archaic language, says, Help me then in every tribulation so to trust your promises, O Lord, that I lose not faith's sweet consolation offered me within your holy word. Help me, Lord. When toil and trouble meeting, heir to take as from a father's hand, one by one, 
the days, the moments fleeting till I reach the promised land. Now, if you got lost in the archaic language, it's easy to do. Let me just summarize it for you in that second half of that last verse. Help me, Lord, whenever I meet toil and trouble to always take it like it's coming from a loving father's hand. Think about that. Think about any toil and trouble you've been in. Think how our attitude would change if we said, this is coming from God. This is my loving father at work. I don't understand it. I don't know why. I'm still going to grumble and cry. I don't understand it. I'm human. I'm going to cry out. But somehow or other, someday, this is all going to make sense to me. Because I trust my loving Father. You'll like the next step. Even if you didn't like step number four, you will like step number five. Step number five is sing. Look at verse three. First part of verse three says, he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. This step follows the previous step as naturally as any metaphor you could think of. Night follows day. I don't care. Pick one. We sing all the time. We sing about, you know, I don't know, love songs, sad songs, silly songs. If you're around my house, I sing all the time. My kids probably got sick of it. I sing all the time. That's just the way I was raised. It's a natural expression for us. Why do you think God gave us the gift of music? If he didn't give us the gift of music for this, I don't know what it's for. You've just been rescued. You've just realized that a loving father will rescue you. And that's not something to sing about? Wow. Sing. Sing by yourself. Sing to yourself. Back in Mark chapter 9, we were reminded that, well, Jesus reminded us that someone who does a mighty work in his name will not soon after be able to speak evil of him. I'm convinced that someone singing God's praises is a stronger witness and is stronger against sin while he's singing. Sing. Try it. Step six. Step six comes from verse five. It's testify. Verse five says, You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. Skip down to verse 9. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. I grew up in an oral society. Stories knit us all together. I grew up on stories of my great-grandparents and grandparents, and this is a good way to pass down history and moral values and all kinds of things. Tell the story. I think that's what Jesus wants us, or God wants us to do here. When this sort of thing happens to us, tell the story. Now, yeah, I know there are going to be some people who laugh or scoff or ridicule or just walk away. doesn't matter. Tell it anyway. Tell the story 
anyway. In a believer's life, God should be so awesome, so unbelievably wonderful. And his actions, viewed through the eyes of faith, so marvelous. That that sort of testimony should be on the tip of my tongue all the time. Now, the Spirit is responsible for how unbelievers react to that. Our job is to sow, right? Not to reap. That's God's job to do that. Believers will be encouraged by your stories. So tell them. Okay, finally, step seven. We're almost there. Step seven comes from verse three and verse 16. The last half of verse three says this. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Verse 16 says, but may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. Did you hear the prayer in that last verse? Now, of course, our work stops before this step ever starts, other than to pray that it actually comes. God opens their eyes, takes out their heart of stone, gives them a heart of flesh, right? That's all God's job, not ours, because that's far beyond our pitiful power. But this verse gives us a glimpse of the reason for it all. So that those so blessed would say continually, great is the Lord. So do everything you can to point the lost to Christ, to build up the believers around you, and then wait for the praise to God. So I didn't do it. Oh, the microphone did it. Very good. There we have God's recipe for dealing with struggles. And we're almost done. I know it's getting warm, so we're almost done. I hope it encourages you, strengthens you to face whatever struggles you might be facing today. But David has one more nugget for us. Now, I had a colleague at ISU who didn't like philosophical nuggets. He used to tell me that any philosophy that can be put in a nutshell belongs there. But I'm going to keep this one. I like this one. Look at verse 17. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. Did you hear that? You're in the middle of a universe that's half a billion trillion miles across. With a hundred billion galaxies and two billion trillion stars. I don't know what the numbers are. They're very big. You're on a planet with eight billion other people. And the God who created it all and who keeps it all with the, his word of power takes thought for you. Now, is it any wonder that David sent this psalm to the choir master? Hey, put this one to music, guys. We're going to keep this one. This one goes in the songbook. Is it any wonder? The Lord takes thought for you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you again for the beautiful sunny day you've given us. 
We see that as just another way, Lord, that you take thought for us. We thank you for sending your son, the ultimate way that you took thought for us. You made a way for us when there was no way. There was nothing we could do in and of ourselves. There was no gift we could bring, no action we could do that would ever span the gulf between us caused by sin. But you sent your son. You took thought for us and made a way. You sent your son to die. You didn't just send him because it was a lark or because it was an easy thing to do. You sent your only son and you gave him up for us. We cannot thank you enough for that wonderful gift, but we can praise you for it. We can lift up your name. We can, as we go through struggles in this life, which you've told us will come and we know will come, we can rest in the assurance that the God who did not withhold his only son will freely give us all things. We know your nature from what you've already done. So we don't have to guess anymore. Our job is to trust. Help us, Lord, to believe and to trust enough so that we will make it through this life. Get to the next life. And here you say, well done, good and faithful servant. In Christ's name we pray these things.